If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Romans. We should have most of the verses we're going to look at up on the screen today. But we started our study on Romans a few Sundays ago. This is our third message. And we've titled this series, The Road of Faith. Now, as Andrew said in his prayer, there's a lot of depth in Romans. Every sermon that we give, the section of scripture, I could probably take only two of the verses and just camp out there and do the entire sermon on those two verses. But I'm looking for a main thought that Paul is uh, trying to lay out, and that's what I want you to walk away with generally. Today, I've titled this message, We All Worship Something. Now, I took one of the verses towards the end of our passage, claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. So the big idea for the message today I want you to walk away with is we all worship something. And in this verse, you see the word exchanged. We worship God or maybe we worship something else, but we trade something for God if we're not worshiping Him. I was thinking about a way to illustrate this is... I grew up in the Midwest, Oklahoma, and great place as a kid because you could, we rode our bikes everywhere, through the woods, neighborhoods, had a a very good friend that I grew up with back then, but I went to California, stayed in touch with him for a long time. When I came here to Guam in the 90s, lost touch for a little bit, but during that time when we lost touch, this very good friend of mine, he broke a law. And when he broke the law, he was caught, and he went to prison. He got out of prison. He served his time. It wasn't something as serious as murder, but he did serve some time. I reconnected with him, and I still talk with him now. But it's interesting to have conversations with him about his life, the decisions he's made. One of the things that's come out of that is this. He broke a law. He went to prison, and during that time, he lost relationship. That's one of the sad things about prison. When someone is taken away and they're put in prison, whether they're a father or um, a mother or a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, you lose relationship because you are locked away. You do not get to have the kind of relationship you could have if you were out of prison. And my friend was married. He had two daughters. And he did not get to see them, and the relationship suffered. He lost relationship. And that is an idea that I want to take forward into the message today. It sets a tone. When we break God's law, we lose relationship with Him. And we were made to have relationship with Him. If you go back to the very beginning, God put Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave them everything that they needed there. And they had relationship with him. He came into that garden. They, they, they had a relationship. But both Adam and Eve, they made an exchange because they broke God's rule. They broke his law. And because of that, they had to leave the garden. In fact, I got an image here. You know, There they are. They had to leave the garden. Eve, she got knowledge. She was deceived. God hasn't told you everything. So her exchange was, I'm going to get some knowledge, but I lost relationship with the Creator. Adam, to me, it's like, I don't want to lose woman. I like woman. You gave me woman, I don't want to lose her. She's going to have to leave. I see there's a problem here. I choose woman. And he had to leave. He broke, both of them broke God's law. There's a loss of relationship. Now that's a problem because they were created for commune to commune with god relationship with god that is part of their identity he made them different from everything else and of all the things in the universe that were made man woman different because they're made in the image of god stars dirt water they don't have they don't commune with god in the way that we do even the animals the animals do not have community with God in the way that Adam and Eve did. 
Having community with God is part of the identity, part of why we were made. So when we have loss of fellowship, now there's a problem because we're losing the thing that we're made for. Now, even today, there's a measure of that in us. I mean, if a plastic Barbie doll tries to understand why she was made, we're real. And I'm alluding to the movie that came out not long ago, Barbie. I watched it on an airplane, just for the record. You know, I'm sitting there. I only had a few choices. You know, that was one of them. I saw the other one. Okay, I'm going to watch Barbie. People are talking about this. It was like the number one movie. You know, and there's all these things in that movie. You could, you know, what were they trying to say here? What were they trying to say there? There's a lot, kind of all these conversations. And some people, it's just a movie. But it got to the end. Here's a picture. Barbie... You know, she's in the plastic world. I'm going to leave the plastic Barbie world. I'm going to go to the real world, and i got to find something else. I'm looking for something else. And it culminates in the end where this woman on the left is the one who made her. I, I made you, Barbie. Well, see, i got to connect with you and ask the question, why did you make me? What's my purpose? There's an essence of that in all of us. Why are you here? What is your ultimate purpose? And without God in the picture, you can't answer it Completely. A.W. Tozer asked the question, what is the chief end of man? And he answered it, quoting the uh, Westminster Catechism, which says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our purpose. That's why He made us. To glorify God and to enjoy Him Forever. Sometimes people only get the first part where we exist to bring glory to God, but we also exist to enjoy Him forever. C.S. Lewis went a little farther explaining that. He, he said that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. <clears throat> in commanding us to glorify Him, God is, in, in, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. They go hand in hand. But it comes back to that question of, of relationship with God. And we're going to get at that a little bit. This sermon and what Paul is talking about in this passage is essentially about relationship with God. Okay? And let's take a look at it. Romans 1, I'm going to go backwards a little bit to verse 16 to 17. I covered that in the first message. I want to show you something. It says, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, I highlighted the word revealed. When I preached on this in the opening message, I didn't talk about revealed as much. But I want you to see this because it's right there. And then the next verse, in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed. There's the word again. So you see them back to back verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so <clears throat> my first point that I'm going to draw out of Paul's teaching here is how we see God. Because this word revealed is talking about we're seeing something. I mean, we think about, if we just think about the word revealed, like in our own vernacular today. I, I, I was thinking about, there's this show, I can't remember the name of the show, but essentially the show does this. They find a family whose house is run down, they send them on a one-week vacation. While they're on vacation, they bring this team of people in and they totally renovate the house and they like, they like soup it up, you know, with all this great stuff in the house. Then they bring them back from the vacation, they can't see it. Usually there's a big bus there and they're standing and then the, the guy says, move that bus. And it drives away. And then they see the house. And the family goes, whoa. You know, and they're so excited about it. But it's a reveal. They're revealing something. They can't see it. Suddenly they see it. Revealed. See? This is about how we see God. The word revealed means to take off the cover. Now, in the Greek, the word revealed is related to the word um, that we use for the end times, uh, apocalyptic. And it's like, I don't know what's there at the end. Reveal it to me. It's, apocalyptic is 
writing is the book of Revelation or parts of Daniel or Matthew 24. It's revealing something. And here he's using the word reveal to take, the, to take off the cover so you can see what's there. And so the first thing that I note is Paul says we see his perfection and his holiness. All right? So the righteousness of God is what's revealed. Righteousness is the state or condition of perfectly conforming to God's perfect law and holy character. I have already used the word righteousness and said it, for us it's like our, our standing before him, a right standing before him. Here, the righteousness of God is being revealed to us. We're seeing it. It's his holy character. It's his perfection. We, as we read God's word, we could describe God as a ball of burning holy light. This is what we get from scripture. He exists in pure light. And you say, well, what's that like? Because if we're talking about relationship, hot, burning light, the kind of heat that burns away things that are impure. I could tell you when the service is over, go out into that parking lot. I want you to have a moment of time, a relationship, small moment of relationship with the sun. I want you to go out there. I want you to gaze up at it and wonder at its beauty and its burningness. And you know what will happen, right? It'll last about three, five seconds, and you'll go, Wah! because you, you, your body cannot take that relationship with the sun. It's a ball of hot, burning flame, light that's coming down to us from far away. But you can still see it, but you can't really look at it, not that long. See, God is holy light, described like that. You cannot come into his proximity unclean. The, the holy purity of God would burn it away, anything unclean. You see, Adam and Eve in the garden hadn't sinned. They could have relationship with God. Now that there's sin, there's a loss of proximity. There's a loss of relationship to God. Something's in between. It's, it's the sin. And the Bible describes us now as our bodies are incorruptible, unholy, an incorruptible, destructible body. We're going to die. Remember when we went through the, the Romans road, the wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned through our breaking God's rules, our rebellion, not just physical death, but spiritual death, separation from him. We can't be with him because of our ungodliness. To come into proximity, something has to change. John MacArthur goes on to say, the gospel reveals that on the basis of faith and faith alone, God will impute his righteousness to ungodly sinners. You say, well, how can we be in his presence then? And Paul's giving us this nugget right here at the beginning of Romans that he's going to unpack further in the book. I use the word impute there. It's to give over to somebody else. Well, what is given? It's the right, holy life of his son. And I described it in one of our other sermons. It's like God, the the illustration is we're putting on a white robe. I'm gonna, I want to come into God's presence, but I got all these raggedy clothes. That re, that's a representative of my sinfulness, my ungodliness. I'm, an, I, I'm an un, in an ungodly state. But God comes and he covers us with the, with the righteousness of his son. <clears throat> what that is, is he came and he lived here on this earth and never sinned, never broke any of God's laws. Perfect. And that record gets counted towards us. When he looks at us, he sees his son's righteousness. Not our own. But we are now able to, to have relationship. <clears throat> so when he says, when he says, 
the, the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. You must put your faith. I believe that Christ was really died in my place, but he, he, it's not just the death. It's also that he lived a perfect life in how he lived gets counted towards me so that now <clears throat> I can stand before God and be in proximity, be close, relationship. I have to have faith in that. So I go back and I think about that picture where God's saying, out of the garden, there they are. They had relationship, but they traded the relationship for other things. Eve knowledge, as I said, Adam, woman, you're out of the garden. And the rest of the Bible is about God's plan and the working out of that plan to bring us back into relationship with God. Because we can't. We can't in the state that we are in. But he goes on. Because we're, how do we see God? Well, one, we're going to see him. There will come a day where we see it's revealed. The, the top's taken off. And we see that holy righteousness of God. But as he's looking at us, he sees it. His son's holy righteousness. But what about those who don't put their faith in? See? And he goes on to say in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And there's the word revealed, highlighted again. The, the, the top is taken off so something can be seen. What is seen? Well, I want to come into proximity to God, relationship. That's what we're made for. But I've got Christ's righteousness, so I'm putting my faith in that. But there are going to be those who don't put their faith in that. They're going to put their faith in other things. And what is revealed to them? The top comes off. What do we see? We see the wrath of God upon people who try to stand before him with some other form of righteousness. That's what we see. Now, I'm looking at this. So we see his perfection in holiness. It's revealed how we see God. Or we see his wrath against ungodliness. <clears throat> now, this word wrath, I want to talk about it for a second. It's not thumos. The Greek word thumos is where we get the words like thermometer from. It's the word orge, which means consistent indignation based on a holy and righteous standard. Now that's important because I don't want to communicate something to you about God that doesn't fit. Because when you hear the word wrath, you might think of raw, ah, anger, you know, like an incredible hulk. You know, God is, see, that's not consistent. The Incredible Hulk is inconsistent. He can all of a sudden poof, flip and there's a rage. That is not God. It's not that kind of wrath. The kind of wrath he's describing is we've got a holy and righteous standard and I can't stand it when somebody breaks it and I'm going to deal with it. And he's even killed about it. Remember that God has many attributes that all work together. He's balanced that way. He's not inconsistent. He's tempered by his other attributes. <clears throat> now, I was thinking about if we were to live in a neighborhood. So let's be in proximity. to We're living together. But in the neighborhood, and maybe you don't know this, but you come to know it. But who's in your neighborhood? Well, I want to raise a family in this neighborhood, but over here there's, there's a terrorist who's coming up with ways to kill all the neighbors. Over here there's a child molester who's figured out how he can get into your house. Over here is a thief. He wants to come into your backyard and steal your stuff. Now I'm starting to think about, I don't know if I want to live in that neighborhood. I'm moving. But every neighborhood we go to is like that. So in society we go, you know what? These aren't good neighborhoods. It's not good. Let's have a standard. The standard is we don't come up with ways to kill neighbors. We, we don't steal stuff. You know what I'm saying? We come up with laws and rules. You see that? And now you move into the neighborhood and like, I'm feeling good about my neighborhood because now we got some standards and people are going to uphold them. But what if there's somebody who doesn't? What if there's somebody who keeps breaking all of them? You see, that's the kind of 
wrath he's talking about. We have this consistent rule that brings about life. It's good. We all want that. We don't want the other thing. We want that. And yet, indignation here is to say, look, I love you, but you keep doing things that are wrong. And so, just like my friend, he broke a law. We have laws. And he went to jail and lost relationship. And this is the kind of wrath that will be revealed, that God's going to say, you can't come into proximity. We're going to go into eternity. You, you're trying to come into eternity, and, I, and you can't come into proximity with me because the righteousness you think you have is like filthy rags to me. You, I have indignation towards that. And what comes off that's revealed, how we see him, is how he's going to deal with that. His righteousness towards ungodliness. If he allows that to not ever be dealt with, he's not right. He's not holy. This is how we see God. There's two kinds of people. Those who have faith bring about a revealing of perfection and holiness, but those who suppress truth, they're going to see wrath, Paul says. And he goes on, verses 19 to 20, who suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, this is really the first point or the uh, second point. How we see God, two ways, and then I put here, how we see God in nature. And the first way we see Him is through our conscience. It either affirms us or convicts us. How, you see, if we're made in the image of God, there's a measure of, of that within us that we know right and wrong. Have you ever done something? And inside of you, it was like, you shouldn't have done that. That's your conscience. That's something that God gives to us. And there's a way in which you can say there's no excuse for unrighteousness. They're suppressing the truth because there's a measure of that knowledge of truth within us is what Paul is saying. You might say, well, how do they know? We know. I can remember as a child, one time I went across the street. I was a new kid, and he had a lot of cool army men. And I liked army men. He had a bunch of army men I had never seen before. They were really cool. They had like different markings on their helmets. And like, these are so cool. And I remember we were playing with all these armies. And boy, I was, I was coveting. I really wanted those army men. I'm a small child. And I just remember, I remember as we were playing, I'd just take one and go, slide it into my pocket. And we're playing, and got another one. And we just kept playing until suddenly I was like, I think I need to go home. You know, about the time I had my own band of brothers in my pocket, you know. <laughs> and we went back and I busted the band of brothers out. And like, these guys are the cool guys. They got different markings. They're like the covert, you know, uh, Green Berets, whatever. And I'm playing with them at my house. Now, I've re and I said, I don't need the friend anymore. I've stolen from him what I really wanted from him. I'm a kid. Partway, I see somebody rolling your eyes. Come on, you never done this? And I mean, I was so convicted. I remember something inside of me. I'm trying to enjoy them. And it's like, this is wrong. You stole from him. Stealing's wrong. I remember being convicted. And I, I have to attest to you. I can't remember exact. I got the army men back. I might have gone over there and accidentally dropped them. I can't remember. <laughs> but the point is that I knew. That's the conscience. It was convicting me. And Paul, see, he's answering a question here. The question is, what about people who may have never heard about the Ten Commandments? What about if they've never heard about God? Is that, is that that's going to be the excuse? But Paul's going to say, we see him in nature. It's in here, in us. And he goes on to elaborate on this later in, in Romans 2. And I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but I'll put the verse up there. He says, those without the law of God by nature do the things in the law, their conscience bearing witness. He says when they do things that abide by the law, they're demonstrating that the law is inside of them already a measure of it. In Acts 28, 
uh, Paul shipwrecked on an island and, and the natives come out that are there and they're collecting wood and a, a viper, a snake bites him that's poisonous. It, he's going to die. And the natives see that. They see this poisonous snake bite him and their response to him is, you must have done something bad. You broke some rules because you're being punished. There's something out there higher than man that is punishing you because you broke some, some rules. These are natives on an island. And Paul, it's a way of demonstrating that they had a knowledge of right and wrong without having Ten Commandments in their possession. I could frame it that way. Through our conscience, we see God in nature, but also through the things that are made. And let me just read to you how he says this. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And he specifically says, you can know God through the things that are made. Perhaps one of the most famous biblical verses that fits this is Psalms 19, where it reads, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night, there's that word, reveals knowledge. And the psalmist there is attesting to the fact that just go outside and look. The sky communicates something to you about God. It uses words like handiwork. That's somebody's crafting something together. It's being made. The word reveal, night to night. The cover's being lifted off. It's telling you something. There is a being out there. Now, you may not know all the deep doctrines of the Bible just by going out there, but you can know there's a God, is Paul's argument. Now, I wanted to highlight three observations that what he makes about in these verses about knowing God in nature. Number one, and I'm just gonna, it's like, let's put it on the record. Number one, he is saying emphatically that God can be known. So if you ever ask the question, well, how about people over here? And never, they never, never heard about Jesus, but Paul's saying they can know about God. Don't, don't doubt that. He clearly says that. Also, that he can be known just through the world. So if a missionary never came, you could know that there's God. And also from creation. So you could go all the way back to the very beginning from that point going forward and all the time, every person should be able to at least know about God. Maybe not Jesus, but God. You can know. Now, <clears throat> Leith Samuel said that missionaries universally testify that they find no atheists in the most primitive tribal settings. Always there is a belief in the existence of God. And I've heard missionaries testify to these kinds of things. I read once about a missionary who had tried to reach a tribe that hadn't been reached. And when they finally got to that tribe and they came up and they were building a relationship leading up to where the missionary said, I want to tell you about this God, about God. And the response from the tribe was, oh, we know about God. We just didn't know his name. And we've been asking for that God to send someone to tell us. Wow. We knew there was a God. And I think, too, this statement, what, to, what is astounding to me is it specifically it talks about atheism. That everywhere you go where the smartest of mankind does not exist, if I could frame it that way, because we keep getting smarter. I mean, rocket technology and, 
and going into space to, to medicine. We keep getting smarter. And the smarter we've gotten, actually atheism has grown. We're getting too smart for ourselves, maybe. But I wanted to, to see, and this is where I said, like this, 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 these two verses, I could preach the entire sermon on this. But it's hard because you're going to step out over here and sometimes not be acting with the, the text of Scripture. But I just want to give you a couple thoughts on this. So how we see God in nature. Well, number one, the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, these are, these are ways that, that you could, through science, see that some, there's, a, there's a maker, there's a creator. When something looks like it's been designed, it attests to the fact that there's a designer. And this is part of where it says, go out and look at the heavens. They declare. But the fine-tuning of the universe, there's more than 30 uh, things that um, make um, life on planet Earth livable, that if they didn't exist, just one of them didn't exist, we could not be alive on this Earth. Um, if, if Earth was a little closer to the sun, be too hot, and we'd die. If it was a little farther away, be too cold, we would die. If the earth was tilted on its axis just slightly on a different angle, gravity would, would be different. We'd, it'd be so heavy that, that maybe we could, you know, could move or so light we'd go off. There's all these things from the water to the air. There are all these things. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I read Christian scientists. They talk about these things. Like the smarter we get, actually, we see even in greater detail what the psalmist was talking about. It looks like someone came along and finely tuned this for us to be able to live. Now, I said the fine-tuning of the universe. Like the psalm says, look up. But I say, look down. The fine-tuning of the microverse. I don't know if that's a real word, but I put it up there. Sometimes I use a word and Andrew tells me later, that's not a word. I said, well, I'm sorry. There's multiverse, but microverse. What I'm trying to get at is, you know, like when, when the psalmist wrote, look up, you know, they didn't have microscopes. You know, today we can look down into the smallest, you know, and find the kinds of fine-tuned details that we can see larger. You know, an, an, an example of this, I could say, would be <clears throat> um, DNA. Uh, the double helix DNA strand has so much information. The DNA is the thing that makes us who we are. How tall, how short, how muscular, how smart, the color of your hair and eyes. DNA is like the, the recipe for you, if you could say it that way. It's so complex. And science can explain a lot of things about that, like how the information is bonded in the strand and those types of things. But in a, in a, in a, if we were to put DNA in a spoon, it has so much information, more information than the books of the world. This is what I've read. It's so much information. But what science can't explain is who organized the information. It points to an organizer. Who organized this? You see, you look up, who organized this? You look down, who organized this? I remember watching a, a video made by Ben Stein. He's the guy from, mostly known from the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he's the guy, the teacher that's like, Bueller, Bueller, if you've ever seen that show. I, he's Jewish, he believes in God, <clears throat> but um, he did a video, and uh, in the video he has an interview with Richard Dawkins. So Richard Dawkins is one of the most famous atheists of our modern era, and um, in, the, in the, the interview he says to the atheist, he says, just for, you know, play along with me. If you die and then you suddenly you, you see yourself before God and you realize you were wrong, what would you say? And his response was, I think I would say to God, why didn't you reveal more of yourself so we could know you? That was his response. And Ben Stein interacted and said, well, but isn't that what he's doing? And he started to bring up all these different things about a universe that seemed to point to a creator or a designer. In fact, he even went down to the microscopic and said, what about these examples? What about the DNA strand? What, who organized this information? It points to intelligence. 
organization of information is evidence of someone intelligent. <clears throat> what do you say to that? And he kept kind of backing him up, and finally <clears throat> Richard Dawkins said, well, I suppose then maybe it was aliens, was his response. And that was Ben Stein's response. Because he says, it seems like that's evasive, because then you could ask, well, who made the aliens? You just keep going backwards. They're going to have some type of intelligence in their formation as well. doesn't answer the question. Well, Paul answers it here. And I see how I, I just wanted to sidestep and talk a little bit about how even in our world today, as we actually do get smarter in sciences and more intelligent, that things like Psalms, it says, look up. But even looking down, we can see the evidence of a creator. But Paul, I want to come back to scripture. When I preach, I like to, to walk through the scripture more. And in verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then in verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And the thing I think about as I look at this, in these two verses, is he attests to the fact that they know there's a God. They knew God. It wasn't a lack of knowledge or a lack of evidence, as Dawkins might say. Well, why don't you make, reveal yourself more? Paul says, enough is there. You should know God, and you know God. But they didn't honor him. They didn't give thanks to him. They became futile, which led to their hearts becoming darkened, which, and this is why my last point I titled, How We Trade God, How We Trade God. But Ephesians 4, Paul says, and he's speaking of unsaved, he says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And that kind of ties in well with what he's saying in Romans 1. It starts with this, I'm, I'm not grateful. I'm not going to give honor. I'm going to come up with my own ways. And what happens to the heart is, is a, if you walk down a road where you're continually saying, no, God, no, your heart becomes hardened more and more, like, like a callus where it doesn't have sensitivity. And you, you can't have the feeling there. And as God tries to maybe move you into belief and, and work through people or His Word, you become callous because of that. Your heart, in other words, it gets worse within your heart. It gets darkened. And Paul says it gets hardened. How do we trade God? And this is the part that comes to us now. He's, you're going to see how they did it, but it's how we can do it as well. Number one, we're not grateful for what we have. Just like Adam and Eve. Great illustration to start with. He gave them everything they would need in that garden, including proximity to Him. But it starts with an ungratefulness. Hey, Eve, He hasn't given you everything. Yeah, but you know, the thing He didn't give you is not good. You don't want it. Oh, I, I gotta have that. And you pursue it. You're not grateful. There's something else always out there elusive. You're not happy because there's something in your life you wish you had that you don't have. An ungratefulness. The scripture moves us to always be thankful, whatever our conditions are. Content. We don't honor him. How can you honor someone who you're not thankful for, towards or grateful for? They dishonor him. And Part of the dishonor is the fact that you reject and pursue other things, as if these things could replace God. Well, that doesn't show honor at all. I mean, even as a father, when I have a child who says, I'm not going to do it the way mom and dad are telling me, I'm going to do it another way, I go, hey, where's the respect? This is our heavenly father. We don't honor him, and we convince ourselves that something else can satisfy us in his place. 
And that's why I go back to that word exchange. You're making a trade. Relationship with God, proximity, I'm trade. There's an exchange. Paul says they exchanged for images. Men, and it even gets worse. Animals, images of animals. And in history, you could go back in time and see some, sometimes there's a mix of those, right? Men and animals are different animals, but all of them replace God. There's an exchange going on. But God has given us a way back to Him to have proximity with Him. You know, after Adam and Eve left the garden, they had sons, Cain and Abel. And He said, He, he told them how. How to have a relationship. You see, just like my friend who broke a law and then he was put in prison and everybody would say, we want that. We don't want to live in the neighborhood where we don't have a standard. And when people go against a standard, we need to be, have that kind of wrath that is a good kind of wrath towards that. But how do you come back into proximity? And God says, look, there has to be a penalty, a sacrifice. The Romans road says the wages of sin is what? Death. And Adam and Eve, they, their bodies, they began to, they're going to die. They're not going to live forever. Cain and Abel, they're not going to live forever, the sons. But when Paul says the wages of sin is death, he's also talking about spiritual death, a separation. You can't be in proximity to me. The, the punishment, it's not a prison. It's a separation for me for eternity. The wages of sin is death. Well, what if we substitute my death with another death? That's God's way to get you back into proximity. Somebody else take the punishment. And so Cain and Abel, it's like, build an altar. Make a sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, he was teaching them something. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be, there has to be punishment. Otherwise, I'm not right. I'm not holy. There has to be a punishment. And Abel took... The animal put it on there, and the animal died in place. And he began from the very beginning to teach that concept to man. The wages of sin is death. When you sin, hey, when we kill that animal, that's, not a, that's, that's a gruesome thing. I want you to see how serious sin is. It brings about death. And he did that. And it satisfied God temporarily, because eventually... God's going to send His Son. And imagine all those years of putting animals there. It put in their minds, there has to be a sacrifice. I put my sins symbolically on this animal. It dies in my place. But eventually, the Lamb of God would come. And the, God's Son would be the sacrifice. He'd be on that cross. He would die. My sins go on to Him. He dies in my place. And then I come over here, and He puts on to me His righteousness. And that allows relationship, proximity to God. Now, Abel did it. He said, I'm going to put faith in what you're telling me. But his brother didn't. If you know the story, right? There's the picture. You see, Cain and Abel were different. Abel was a shepherd. And so he brought, this is part of his work. It's who he is. His identity is a shepherd. His identity, he comes and he puts it there. But Cain was not a shepherd. Cain was a farmer. He's planting. He's growing things. And in Cain's mind was, I'm going to put something that's a representation of me. I'm going to bring the vegetables, the fruit. I'm going to put them on there. That's going to be my offering. And it wasn't acceptable to God. And to me, this is a, this is a great illustration to teach us that sometimes we think we can come in our own way to God, but we can't. He thought that this was a demonstration of righteousness it's, a, it's part of my life. It's part of my identity. But it wasn't God's way. And God rejected it. And in the story, you have um, Cain becomes angry, the wrong kind of wrath. And he kills his brother, the first murder in the Bible. Now, how, how does this all apply to us? Well, I want to say to you, 
And I'm going to go back to the first slide. We all worship something. We all worship something. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Now, my closing illustration is to show you that, that Cain made an exchange too. He exchanged God's way to get back to God for his own way. And you cannot do that. There's only one way. Even Christ said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You must put faith in the reality of Christ. He was a human that lived on this earth. He was God's son. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place. You put faith in that. Now, we all worship something. There's a measure where Cain gave worth. See, the word worship is worth. You ascribe worth to something. We all ascribe worth to something. Cain ascribed worth to his identity as a farmer. And, it had, and for him, it was greater than God's worth because he traded. He made that exchange. And the way I want to land it is to ask you, what is your personal life like? Do you live in a way that gives worth? See, when I was preparing this, this actually hit me. We all worship something. So if I am not spending time giving worth to God, whether it's in prayer, reading His Word, I'm doing something else. I'm trading something. Something else is value. Maybe I get up and, and I, I like to read the news. I like to read sports. Maybe you're just too busy and you just can't get to it, but something else is filling your time. If you're not worshiping God, then you're worshiping something else. You're, a, you're giving part of your life away that should go to God, to other things, giving worth to them. They have greater worth and value in your mind than God. And you see, if I go back to the first verse, justification is the word he used, the just shall live by faith. The gospel is power. What? The righteousness of God will be revealed from faith for faith. So I put my faith in that act of Christ on the cross, but it doesn't stop there. I mean, salvation is there, but it brings about greater steps and measures of faith throughout my life. I need to grow in my faith that this is valuable. I need to, to give God worth and grow faith within me to cultivate that. Now, I wrote this down. This is what I'll close with in the back of my Bible. I came across this. I write a lot of things in the back of my Bible. But this was a quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher. It was about prayer. This is what he said. It's about me. It's about a pastor. It says, a minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public. But what that minister is, on his knees, in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. In other words, sometimes we find our identity. How many people were coming to church? This is what he says. We find our identity. How many, how many, how, how are the ministries were feeding people out there? You could have a big church. You could, it could have the appearance of something that, yeah, I really value God. But Lloyd-Jones, he said, you know how you really know the heart of a pastor? It's what he is on his knees in prayer before God in secret that no one knows about. See, that hit me because it makes me go, how much do I do that? If I'm not doing that, then I'm not really anything. That's at least what he's saying, but it's true. Giving worth, carving out that time because this section is about relationship and you're either going to see God in one of two ways. You're either going to see God that righteousness of God that's going to be revealed, or you're going to see the wrath of God that's going to be revealed. And we want to be here. We want to have the faith in what Christ did, but we want to be growing in our life. If we genuinely and truly have put faith here and we love God, and they're thankful and are grateful, then we will give the kind of time that shows that worth Remember over here, how do you become 
the person who trades God away? Well, you're ungrateful, not thankful. You don't show Him honor. So we need to be thinking about, am I really grateful for my life and what God has given me? Am I thankful? Do I show Him honor? Or am I so busy, I I barely have time for church? Or do I invest in His Word, invest in His people? Do I give Him time in prayer? The measure of really who, who I am is found there. Do you see that? That God's calling you into relationship. And there's only two kinds of people. You're going to see the righteousness of God or you're going to see the wrath of God. And Paul's urging is to be called into that relationship from faith for faith that you continue to give the kind of honor and to be thankful that grows you in that faith. Because we don't want to... There's a lot of people who start here, but... They end up over here because the gospel never took root within them. You've got to nurture that and cultivate that. Gratitude and thankfulness and honor. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for its um, lessons. Even though it has a lot of deep theology in it, Lord, it's very practical. It's just getting back to faith. The book is about faith. My prayer is that we would be a church that grows in its faithfulness in honoring you being grateful and being thankful we grow right now just seeing some of the apologetics of Paul there's no excuse everyone has an opportunity to know that there is a God it's eternal power it's invisible attributes our evidence And we live in an age that not only can we look up, we can look small, down, to see the evidence of your creativeness, your design. But may it all be, not to win some discussion or debate with a person, but may may it be to grow our heart in gratefulness and thankfulness and a desire to honor you, to carve out the time to give you honor love you. We lift this up in Christ's name. Let's worship together as we stand.